0: Hey everyone, it's Bram Connolly here, retired Special Forces Operator and Officer with over 20 years in the Australian Army. Just before we launch into today's show, I want to tell you a little bit about the Warrior U program that forms the basis of the Warrior U website. The program has been designed to help anyone aspiring to join the Australian Defence Force. There's a tailored fitness program based on simple movements that ensures you get from zero to hero in the time frame that you have available. There's lessons on military skills and culture. Lessons are self-paced and there are quizzes to help reinforce the learning. Some of the topics include weapon types, navigation theory, survival, and there's fieldcraft lessons too, just to name a few. There's also a mental resilience block of training. The main aspect of the program, though, is the access to mentors who've either held positions within the Defence Force recruiting or recruit or officer instructors and even some Special Forces selection staff. So no matter what you want to do in the ADF, we have a mentor to assist and provide advice. There's a one-off payment of $99 for the complete program. Check out the website on www.warrioru.com.au. That's warrior and the letter U. Now, to introduce today's sponsor and then our guest. Have you checked out Aussie Strength? It's a company that makes legit workout equipment and... It's a veteran-owned business who are not only controlling the narrative, but controlling the market. These guys put as much passion and effort into their business as they put into their military service. They have rigs, bumper plates, in fact, thousands of things on their website for all you fitness fanatics. If you're considering fitting out a home gym or a large-scale industrial-type gym, then they've got everything you need. And you just have to check out their website. It's amazing. I'm not joking. I approached these guys to do an advert for them. Truly. I was that impressed by their company. Check out the website. And if you use the code WARRIOR10, that's WARRIOR10, you'll get 10% off your purchase. That's Aussie Strength. Check out their Instagram too. Some uh, great motivational content. Let's get on with the show. So Hugh Rimmington, you're used to being in front of a camera. You're used to two-bit journalists around you I'm sure probably none as amateur as what I am I have been getting coached by a friend though Merrick Watts he's been sort of coaching me on on how to, how to lead you into questions and then how to draw them back on myself
1: <laughs> oh, all right, and cool.
0: uh as a as a storyteller which 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 I am I think trying to be you sure are? a new a new a new you know a new era of storytellers what went through your mind where you were standing in the middle of that minefield boom look at that straight in from left field
1: <laughs> yeah one of the funny things about Somalia it, when you look back in it I'm on a Somalia Facebook group veterans mm. Facebook are kind enough to let me in on it and uh, was actually how incredibly amateur so much it was certainly the journalism was mm. was monstrously amateur you know if you think about it there was 90 early 93, January 93 we went in, I think. Mm. But there were a couple of the old salt journos who had some memory of uh, the Vietnam War, I think. But uh, by and large, we were all newbies to war or conflict. that We'd simply grown up in a peaceful time. And one of my lasting images, well, I'll get onto the minefield, but my my lasting, well, there are many lasting images out of Somalia, but one was just really the arrival where we went down to see the first Aussie diggers coming in and they flew it on a, Qantas Jumbo Jet in full gleaming red and white, you know, livery. And they came down because I weren't allowed to run. Uh, my daughter's just brought me a marshmallow fresh from the fire. Thank you, my darling. I'm just in the middle of an interview. Thank you for this. Beautiful. Roasted marshmallows. What can you say? So
0: this... Um, <laughs> Sorry, we're talking <laughs> so about jumbo. amateur journalism. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, we're keeping it real here, Brad. Yeah, good, good. So there we were at Mogadishu Airport, which is an incredible sight to see. It looked like apocalypse now. It mm. was when you actually realized what American material actually means. Mm. But had gone into this place, Mogadishu. There's this airport. There were these sort of low hills that rose above uh, on the landward side of the airport because the airport was basically down near the sea. And all the buildings there were shattered, completely Mm. shattered. Mm. But then you you saw this thing where planes were just coming in, one after the other after the other, helicopters flying above and Mm. kind of overwatch position, the noise and the rumble and, you know, the trucks and the transporters all moving and just the sheer American efficiency of it. And into the middle of all of this flies this Qantas jumbo jet and these diggers come down onto the tarmac and under the rules, the civil civil aviation rules, they weren't allowed to have their guns in the body of the plane. So they would freshly arrived, swinging their arms, no, not a piece of weaponry on them, and some sniper fire comes in off the hill. Mm. And in retrospect, it's just bloody hilarious. Mm. The diggers hit the deck, and I looked up, and I could see the look of absolute wild-eyed cold horror mm. in the eye of the Qantas pilot. It had his little window open. And he's looking around. He realises he's looking down. He's seeing all the soldiers at the deck. He's in the biggest target there is (laughs) for for a 1,000 kilometres. And the engines are screaming as he puts it into this bend and tries to get the hell out of Dodge. Mm. It was quite hilarious. But into that was the fact that I went down there to cover a story, and I was looking around thinking, you know, we're there to help these poor Somalis, and they have no food. They're all starving to death. And we have been posted up to Baidoa, which was called the city of death. Most More people have died there than anywhere else. And I see this... Crop sitting in this field, so I wander off into the into it to do a stand up, thinking, "Well, we're here to defend them and protect them as they feed themselves, and they're unable to hunt." Well, and nonsense. And um, as it says in the book, the few Somalis come along a path nearby, and they they start kind of laughing at me, and and I'm thinking that's all kind of cute, and funny, a cultural moment. And then the cameraman says, "I think he's trying to tell you something." And I looked across, and one of them was going, "Boom," mm. you know, like. Boom, under my feet. And I mm. realised, of course, if you've got had 170,000 people who just starved to death in this town, why is there a full crop?
0: Right. Jeez. <laughs> Unharvested. Yeah.
1: You'd have to say my situational awareness levels were close to zero.
0: Is it given the recognition that it deserves Somalia, just putting you on the spot a little bit there?
1: Well, no, I don't think so. I think one of the things about Somalia was that it wasn't a big shooting war for the Aussies. It, 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 I'm not saying the shots weren't fired but it wasn't like a wasn't a sort of contact everyday kind of mm. thing for the for the period of the deployment there was some of that mm. but what there really was was that, you know they talk about moral injury people were being confronted by scenes that you couldn't really train for and certainly I don't think they were trained for it mm. and I have a number of images stuck in my mind I went in to a feeding exercise that they were doing there a tiny town called Barakaba and Barakaba as you rolled into town it had a big rock there that looked a bit like a mini-air's rock and at the foot of the rock was a was a sort of pool of water I presume it was the water supply for the town, which was a vile stinking green stuff it was putrid if you smelt it and around just nearby were the Somalis had died in huge numbers just of starvation for the most part. And they couldn't bury them in the hard earth. So what they'd tend to do is just stack them up like firewood and put stones over the top of them. So they'd be they looked a little bit like those, you know, those wasps, nests, those paper paper wasps or whatever you get. So you just see these, you know, like like cylinders of bodies covered in stones, mm. and then more put on top and more stones put on top. And all of this was sitting right next to the water supply had a desperate feel about it. Mm. And there were landmines just visibly on the road, quite apart from the ones that were possibly invisible. And it was considered to be the Badlands and that um, guys in their technicals could possibly come in and attack as they arrived to put this food supply out. You know, the diggers were there to protect the exercise, but it was really the aid agencies that were supposed to be in charge of accountability of all this food. And they took far too long in the blazing heat Mm. to get through the accountability stuff. Women, because I would only give food to women, and the headman would sit there and say, well, this woman, yeah, I know her. She needs food for seven people or whatever, and they'd serve it out, and she'd carry it off. But they're taking so much time about it mm. that in the heat, they were already pretty marginal. Women started dying, yeah. literally collapsing. And meanwhile, they could see that they were in trouble. This was going to take too long. They'd, they were making their own calculations. And they put down some razor wire to try to control these crowds of women. And the women started crowding up against the razor wire. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing a young digger. He was 19 years old. His name was, I think, Ken Farmer. Mm-hmm. Surname was Farmer. And I think, I think his nickname was Polly, like the uh, AFL football player. But I remember seeing him. They'd given them these long sticks for sort of crowd control. And I saw him whacking this razor wire, not not the women, but the razor wire as a kind of a, uh, as they look, to overrun the place. And he was kind of yelling at them, red-faced, baking in the heat. There wasn't enough water for the diggers because we only had a a far too limited water bladder and water creation system that was at the base of Paidoa. base is too grand a word. So everyone was dehydrated. He was bright red in the face and he was shouting at these skeletal women. And I just looked at him for a minute and I thought, there's nothing in the training of a 19-year-old Aussie boy that prepares him for waving sticks in the faces of dying skeletal women.
0: Yeah. And
1: and the shock of that, I think, the sense of disturbance, mm. I think was quite profound. In the end, the women overran that place and the mm. diggers just went for the trucks and got out of there. Yeah. So I, and so I think that there was that business. Everywhere you went, you saw...
0: It was a technically difficult operation. Oracle things that happened... A lot of the things I talk about on the, on the Warrior U podcast are full kinetic combat in Afghanistan and sure. and those stories. Sure. But the stories that I have from Somalia, some of them are they were probably they would be harrowing now if I went through it now as a you know forty odd year old. But as an as a nineteen year old, it was easier for me to reconcile. Actually, a lot of that is just being down to, to being dopey and young. But um, I remember we were driving down the main street at night we'd we'd come across a um, a vehicle accident out of town and, and a bus had rolled over and, and we we piled all of the all of the bodies into the in between the splash plate and the APC because an APC has a plate on the front of it that it puts down if it's going to go over water. So it's a good place to to put bodies, unfortunately. So we had these stacked up inside it. So they're on if you can imagine they're on the outside of the vehicle, on the front of the vehicle between a, a big plate and the vehicle. And we were driving at speed to go back to the morgue and a kid ran out in front of the APC and the driver locked it up and the splash plate released and all these bodies just went all over the road. We got out to go and collect the bodies after almost being I mean, already killed in this, you know, let's stop this. And when you stop an APC at speed, it has a second order effect of the bodies inside the APC. So we got out already shaken up, picking up these bodies for the second time tonight. These women had seen all of this from across the street, had thought we'd hit all these people. And they started tearing our clothes off us and, and wailing and scratching and biting. And, and we had to, in the end, I think we had to leave most of the bodies there and just get in the APC and protect ourselves because the only thing left to do is shoot. And I mean, yeah. years later, I coined the phrase courageous restraint and the fact that we don't give out medals for courageous restraint. It's always got to be someone Absolutely. killing someone. But the courageous restraint shown during Somalia... You know, and and, they, and there's a there's a move within that Facebook group to lobby the government for I think for a battle honour or something, something, some sort of recognition other than the the double ASM. You know
1: that matters more for people in uniform than it does out of uniform. Sure, you know, so I've seen that debate, and um, you know I can't I can't contribute it to it because it's very much within the the defence you mm. know the serving mindset as to what those medals mean. represent to mm. them. but uh, look, there's no. Doubt it was a tough gig. Just mm. the conditions were tough mm. before you start getting into the rest of it. Yeah, um, and starting I mean, kids I mean, I think is the tough. Rwanda was even more, you know, oh, you yeah. particularly the people who were at Cabello, the people at Cabello just had a, it was just off the charts yeah. really. And, and, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken to senior officers who have basically privately claimed that Cabello, people who were at Cabello were you know, I didn't use the word cowards, but the implication was is that they they were less than fully manly because they didn't open fire. Wow, uh, that's a hard. Was outside the rules, outside the rules of engagement, would have resulted more being killed. Mm. You know, any survivors that could have been charged with murder. You know, but that's a judgment of that, and I just think the people, particularly here at Cabello in that you know, witnessing and trying to save people's lives in the middle of just an appalling massacre. Yeah, uh, of civilians. i I've you know, met I've met
0: guys that were there and. There's no doubt in my mind that they they did the only thing possible. There's, I mean, it's hard to tell when you're not there, right? It's hard to tell, oh, tell when look, you're not
1: I've, there. God, no. I've, I've looked at that as closely as I can. I've read every account that's. Uh,
0: I think been if they fired dead one dead. shot, they would have all been dead. I mean, people don't understand the the, the weight of people that were there create you know conducting that massacre. Yeah. It wasn't two or three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was, there were
1: thirty two. I think there were thirty two at the worst of the. Mm of the massacre, there were 32 Aussies there mm. of, of, of whom it was basically a medical unit. Plus
0: with, with light weapons. Mm. Uh,
1: yeah, with just light weapons, and mm. they, they wouldn't have lasted five seconds. No. And they wouldn't have saved any more people besides the point. They would have no. killed quite quickly, yeah. and the massacre would have proceeded even more vigorously.
0: Yeah, yeah, some, some pretty, I think Somalia and Rwanda and then the, the, the Black Hawk crash as well, there was a real coming of age for the Australian Defence Force, that that was occurring during those periods that you got to witness prior to Timor it was a real, you know, slow coming of age. But yeah.
1: Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one aspect of that was that it was pointed out to me by uh, the brigadier who was in charge of the UNAMIR um, deployment. Mm. I don't know if he was a brigadier at the time. He might, might have been a brigadier later. He might have been a colonel at the time. I can't remember, but. He was saying that at that time, as a peacetime army, careers were based on how well he performed during exercises. Mm. And when they were setting off to to take on this mission in Rwanda, there was some major exercises coming up. And this was going to be an all-services type of effort. Mm. And he put out the call of what he needed to make to be effective in Rwanda. And he wound up getting all the broken bits of kit because the people wanted to save the good kit for the really important stuff, which was the exercise. Is that right? And uh, because, because that's where careers are made and lost, is did you, did you make a good showing of yourself in the big exercise? Is that right? And, you know, if you think about that in terms of what it says, uh, let's assume for the moment what he says is correct and accurate. What that says about the difference between, a, you know, a peacetime mindset for mm. a military force and a wartime mindset, it shows you how quickly you can slide out of wartime into peacetime mindsets and mm. it doesn't work. Well.
0: Hey, let's talk about minefields. And in particular, my, my sort of leading question is, was it a cathartic process more than anything? Or, or it, it, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought it might have that.
1: been. Uh, absolutely. More than I thought, actually.
0: Mm.
1: One of the things I found, I read uh, Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, wrote a book called Life, mm. and the tagline was, surprisingly, I remember almost everything. Wow. Because of Keith Richards was a notorious you know, Hmm. consumer of almost every known pharmacological enhancer. Hmm. And you wouldn't imagine that he could remember his own name. But in fact, it's an incredibly vivid book. But when I started writing this book, I realized that it is actually astonishing. I did have good notebooks that I could call on and some journals, particularly on some of those longer trips in Africa and in, um, you know, the Middle East and so on. And they could give me specific names so i so i might not have remembered a person that i met in a particular place or whatever but but then in the journal i'd have their names and that gave it that extra value of of having that kind of detail and sometimes little bits would come out but it's amazing what our brains store mm. and when you start writing it i recommend this for every single digger every single person who's had military experience it doesn't matter, it's not about quality of writing or anything else like that, but sit down, start writing and don't stop mm. and just keep going. I had an interesting experience because I went on holiday at one stage and I took a crappy old laptop and while I was away on that, I wrote a chapter about my first sort of overseas mess-up, which was the first coup in Fiji in 1987. It was quite pivotal to me because I I, I learned for the first time I saw mobs, I saw you know, with machetes and had to escape them. I saw soldiers in balaclavas with M16s who had taken over the parliament and I was arrested, I was thrown in jail. I was incredibly ill-prepared for how it was and everyone sort of thought that Fiji was this place with friendly people with hibiscus mm. flowers behind their ears smiling at you and, and there was this other darker thing that was going on. Mm. And, I, and there I met for the first time, genuine foreign correspondents, traveling correspondents who went around the world from one hotspot to another. And I looked at that and thought, wow, you know, people do this all the time mm. for what they do. So it was quite a big deal for me. So I sat down and wrote this chapter and it came very quickly. Mm. And then the computer crapped out and ate that chapter. Mm. And so I thought, ah, bugger. But I've lost stories before as a reporter in the field. So the best thing to do is just get straight to it and write it again while it's still fresh. Is that I right? found there was nothing there. Yeah, I found there was nothing there. My brain had gone. And it was almost as if my brain was saying, "I've downloaded all of that. You've had it. Data dump. Yeah, do what you like with it. But if you're going to waste it, I, it's not coming back." Mm. So I went on and I wrote a whole bunch of other chapters. Returned to Fiji later on, and I wrote up, you know, an account of what happened. But it didn't have that immediacy. I think with the whole exercise taught me. I, like I'm involved with soldier on. I'm on the border soldier on. I deal with a lot of soldiers who are struggling, and mm. and other defence personnel who are struggling a little bit. And PTSD is part of what you do of what you deal with
0: Mm.
1: and one of the things i realized through writing the book is that your brain is like a massive sponge for this stuff Mm. and you just don't know how much you've got Mm. and then when you start to deliver it out it all it all starts to flow out of you and then afterwards remarkably after the book has been completed i would have said beforehand i lived constantly with images of just they were just around the corner the corner of my eye there were images that were constantly flowing at me Mm. of kids dying or things going bang or other sorts of things going on, and I've realised subsequently it's gone away. Mm. I can pull those up with some effort. I can put myself back there, but it's now almost as if I'm watching it, I'm recalling a TV series, a particularly vivid TV series, and that it's not actually internalised. So Mm. in psychological terms, I think it's it's tremendously valuable and cathartic.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Lee's not but doctor here in University of Western Australia in psychology and she was talking about resilience and mental toughness and and PTSD and immersion therapy and the fact that if you've if you've had PTSD and most people have PTSD of some sort from something you know some sort of post traumatic stress obviously it's generally attributed to an almost dying experience or something that you can't that you can't influence yourself it's frustrating because you're watching it happen you can't do anything about it And she was saying that one of the ways that they that they treat that is to is to slowly immerse someone back into the same situation or or whatever and and writing can be like that. You can be immersing yourself back into those memories, reliving it and then and and in some ways making sense of it and reframing it. Yeah. So did Um, you no
1: doubt? I, mean, I did. I worked with a uh, mm. on a project that was the North Bondi RSL was putting up, which was called originally soldiers' stories and they converted mm. to s- service stories for obvious reasons. And, so, sorry, um, Hugh.
0: I just I realised just for a second then that I was talking about that a little bit too flippantly, and I don't I don't mean to talk about it flippantly. PTSD. If, no, I I
1: yeah. don't think any of us. Mm. We're we're all in this together, you know. Mm. So mm. I don't think anyone takes it flippantly. Well, so. you
0: know, I, I spent a while. And I talked to Mike Glover today, I did an interview with him in America as a USSF guy, and we both agreed that we both felt guilty for a while there for not having PTSD, like something was mm. wrong with us because we didn't. Yeah, and yeah. so that's my sort of – so now what I'm trying to do is take an approach and an angle to help people that I know have it while trying to understand why I don't, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, look, it's a really interesting thing because I I I've, I know Special Forces soldiers and quite well who – go exactly that it's like no, no sorry yeah uh, you know no uh, problem killing the people i had to kill
0: yeah um, and, definitely uh, in that know, and camp yeah. was doing and mm. that was
1: what it was and mm. that's fine i would have said that i would i had no issues with it that it hadn't touched me mm. that's the reality of it. it and and i think it's taken actually withdrawing right away from it and also being much more sensitive to my role with young kids as a father and as a husband and these kinds of things And and you kind of go well you know my behaviours are within the bounds of normal Australian male behaviours. Mm. You know, I'm not violent, uh, these sorts of things. But, you know, I can get cranky and, mm. and things at me in different ways. And I've really, really, I think I've been helped by the diggers that I've spoken to who mm. have been open enough. And and in the end, I have to say, I I'd, I'd have to concede that it took a slightly deeper bite of me than I was willing to previously acknowledge. Not that I think I've ever been crippled by it, but enough,
0: yeah, it's, it, enough to know. It, 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 going on. you know i I'd, I'd agree that i mean i was exhausted you know yeah. mentally and physically exhausted after the last deployment and that's a thing and then de- depression is a thing as well you know and then losing your identity when you leave the military losing absolutely. you're not wearing that armor anymore you've got to reinvent yourself that's you know a separation anxiety type thing but post traumatic stress you know generally is absolutely crippling and it's and it's you can't get away from those thoughts of the things that that happened at that time you were talking about. And and I think there's a
1: lot of evidence about it. It just, you know, it it is a process. It takes time for it Mm. to almost seep out, so that you can really look at it and go, yeah, look, you know, there is shit that I don't need to carry
0: Mm. every day. I'm going to do a podcast in a few months. I'm going to do a podcast. I'm working on something at the moment. And perhaps some platoon commanders will find it interesting. It's based on Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grosman's findings on killing and on combat. And I think Um you... I think you can inoculate for PTSD and I think I did it with the guys that I served with.
1: Oh, well, that's cool. I mean, I've read Grossman and uh, it's a. It's it's you know, it's funny how everybody in the game has read that mm. because it speaks so directly to...
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, if you're, of, if you're a special of forces experience. officer and you haven't read Dave Grossman or McRaven, then you're probably not at the top of your game. Yeah. Calling them yeah. out. You were talking about the RSL.
1: Yeah, so particularly uh, the... Um, they were doing I, I, soldier honours where I put my effort in, but the North Bondi RSL in particular, I thought, had a really good set of programs. But one of them was this thing called Soldier Stories, and I was involved in that because what the effort there was was to was to create a program whereby transitioning or vets or, or people who are in the service could come and learn some public speaking skills. Mm. Some of them saw themselves as having a potential future on a speaking circuit and these sorts of things. Mm. But the main thing is when you got in there and talked to them, it was recognising that they had often very unstructured, complex tales to tell that were disturbing to them Mm. or that they were still trying to to sort of get a full handle on stuff that would go on. So I'd go in there and it was very supportive and you'd say – it's okay. Well, look, everyone here has got the same experience. No one here is going to criticize you or something. So just for a start, why don't you just give us maybe two or three minutes on on why you're here and maybe an experience. And it was completely common for mm. people to talk for half an hour. Mm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> They'd get going and they would just have the story and it would be vivid. Mm. And then at the end of that, I'd go, wow, okay, you've got a, you've got a tale. Mm. You know, you've got something in there. So, and then I'd work on those, and then would get them to go and give a speech to a legacy lunch because that's an audience of people who are totally supportive. They're not going to be judged, mm. and it's extraordinary how I saw people who were really, really not. It's not that they weren't coping; they were externally they were coping, but things were definitely under stress. Mm. And they'd go down, and they'd they'd in the act of getting their speech, if you like because uh, I'm very firm on time, you've got 10 minutes, you can't go over 10 minutes, you've got a 10-minute speech. Mm. And then they'd go off and they'd practice, et cetera, and they'd get it down to 10 minutes because the discipline of time forces structure around their thoughts. Mm. And And I'd give them a few, you know, just an idea about how to start it, how to stop it, and how you're going to have that arc through it. They'd practice this up, they'd go down there, they'd talk to the this thing, everyone would be really interested in what they've got to say. And at the end of it, it was almost as if they'd been released. Mm. And I remember seeing one of these guys, we walked down York street, I think it is in Sydney out of the legacy headquarters after one of these lunches. And we sort of handshakes all around. And I saw this bloke, he was an ex SF guy and he was, he was wandering down the road and he was, walking with this kind of jaunty almost a dance as he walked down the street it was like all the stuff had been lifted he mm. was on top of the world mm. and when he thought about how he was when he first turned up there so that business of expressing your story giving being given permission to do it and building structure around it i think is you talk about cathartic it is mm. tremendously cathartic
0: we are completely different than americans in the way that we we compartmentalize everything we're not all we don't we don't have permission to to do anything we 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 don't think we have permission when we leave the military to talk about our service, especially the special forces guys. There's an industry in America based around special forces, people mentoring, you know, the next generation. In, in here in Australia, there's hardly anyone doing it because they're all waiting for, for the universe to give them a signal or they're all too scared waiting for a brigadier to say, yes, you can do this or, or no, you can't. And I think that's part of the issue. And, and the other part of the issue is the fact that the military is so shy of the media and have never understood... How to use the media, or how to how to control the narrative while on operations through embedding forces, where the, the Americans don't see them don't the American SF especially don't see the media as uh, a combatant against them.
1: Well, so, I mean, some do. I think there are still there are still guys who definitely have been schooled up on you know it's the media that lost us the Vietnam War, and that's the kind of thing. It's funny, mm-hmm. you know, reporters lost us the war and And that still holds among some of them, but there is there's two things I, I reckon you make a really good point. One is that in the United States, the notion of service is much more externalized. You know, if you're in uniform, you get to board aircraft before anyone else. Mm. Strangers go up to people in uniform in the street and thank them for their service. it's much it's much more built into that sort of gung-ho patriotic America. I'm not sure that's altogether healthy mm. because I think. I like the fact that in Australia we don't live in a militarised state. It mm. is very much a civilian place. But there is that ignorance about what the military does that's built into it. But the other thing about the United States is the First Amendment protections to free speech. And I really noticed this with being embedded with American troops in Iraq, mm. is that, for one thing, if you go with the, the, the Aussies, you, you have an officer assigned to you. You know, I always got an officer. and mm. Maybe there's a warrant officer sometimes. So that you you were always around the people who were basically keeping an eye on you for your protection and to, all this sort of stuff. Whereas with the Americans, they just say, "You want to go out with the whatever cavalry to do whatever, you go." Mm. Uh, here's where you've got to be. You join in.
0: We don't have and free speech, do we? In we a,
1: don't have what's sorry? free, free speech? speech. No, we absolutely don't. People no, don't realise
0: that in and, Australia.
1: And the other thing about it is that, you know, I was in Iraq. I just started on a just a, a couple of days in bed with some guys from the 5th Cavalry, actually, and that we were working in West Baghdad mm. at the time of the surge. And we'd literally been with them for a matter of minutes, and we drove into a complex ambush, a couple of bombs, small arms fire, it got out through a bit of luck, and we turned up at a, there was a, a big sort of burnt-out shopping mall that had a look at the, it had oversight of the roads that led out to the west, out to Fallujah and so on, and so we sort of went back there and just sort of regrouped, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll have a chat with this staff sergeant, this 24-year-old staff sergeant. We are in the lead vehicle, and he, he was he was in command of that vehicle when we drove into this ambush. And, and in the course of it, there'd been a big debate in the United States about whether Iraq could be called a civil war or not. Mm. The military didn't like that because the implication of it was that if it's a civil war, you just have to get out. But a guy called Harry Reid, who was the Democrat, senior Democrat in the Senate, had, had called it a civil war that day or the day before. So that was perceived to be a significant element mm. of, of the dismantling of bipartisanship about the whole damn thing. Mm. And so I put it to this guy, Matt St-Pierre, and he said, yeah, I think we are in a civil war. I think, he said, I think we're going to leave this place worse than we found it, and I think when we go, the people who have been supporting us will feel the wrath of the rest. Wow. He, he spoke a little bit more on that. His strategic insight was dead right, and but he had no fear of saying that. Mm. And that's and no one was particularly perturbed that he'd said it mm. on the basis that he's down there, he's not giving away state secrets, he's giving an insight into how the war's going as he perceives it.
0: And what worries me now, about that is you've got imagine that would go in Australia. Well, you've got someone. Well, the the, the counter argument is you've got someone like Al Baghdadi. Who who then is monitoring American back then is is a no one is monitoring American media, and then he's like, oh, we're in a civil war, okay, and the next thing you know, you've got Shia and Sunnis fighting against each other in earnest for the first time in history, and the whole the whole history yeah. changes. It's like Samuel Huntington writing Clash of Civilizations, found on Osama bin Laden's laptop. It's like, hey, I'll feed you yeah. the narrative.
1: Yeah, but I look, I totally get it. So, did Samuel Huntington create a clash of civilizations, or was he merely the first person to realize what was actually going well, on? That's what right.
0: Is it, it, it the chicken? Done? Is it the chicken or the egg? Did he just did he just say, "Hey, there's these two civilizations," and at some point, and Osama bin Laden then reads this while he's while he's working in construction and goes, "Okay, well, if that's the case, then I'm your man." I mean, who knows? I think he was-
1: yeah, but I think he was well-established before then. And, and Huntington was actually talking about a range of civilizations. Mm. So it wasn't just a sort of a West mm. versus Islam mm. argument. But, but equally, Baghdadi and those people, the Sunni and the Shia, they had already started from mm. 2004 to have a crack at each other. And, of course, the Sunni and the Shia, the whole schism in Islam, is mm. based on them fighting each other. You know, And it, in many ways, the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s was a sort of a Sunni-Shia battle. So mm. it wasn't as if the tensions between Sunni and Shia, they were kept, Saddam Hussein through Shia repression, was able to keep a lid on it. But um, mm. it was always there and then it blew up It blew up again. And in many ways, my view of it is, I, your point is a fair one, that people who want to propagandise, we see this in the Western world. You, you can go to any Facebook group and whether it's neo-Nazis or crazy other people will, will cherry pick what they want to hear and then build a you know anything they and if they're not getting it they'll make it up right. to create a sort of a, a world view and so that definitely in the digital space can certainly be done and that's a risk and a challenge for all of us mm. but is the answer to have less well-informed conversations mm. or is the answer to have better informed conversation and recognize that nothing is absolute that all things are at best, approximate, mm. and that uh, many views can be taken of the same thing, and that a soldier on the ground—he was on his third tour, Matt said Pierre by that stage—he had basically grown up in Iraq. He's an expert. Um, had a view of it that was that, that deserved the respect that a sergeant's mm. view.
0: I should point out that I think it was Francis Fukunama wrote "End of History" as a rebuttal to yeah. to Samuel Huntington's preeminent work, so there was a definite counter argument. Actually, what we were seeing is is just history stopping as far as he was concerned with, with well, regards to... and Fukuyama
1: to... Was, has been proven to be wrong. Huntington is, is more accurate, yeah. more close to the way in which things have panned out because Fukuyama believed that liberal democracies had won the argument mm. so profoundly that you'd be mad not to become a liberal democracy and that the world was going to march onto liberal democracy and mm. that was the way the world was going to go. Mm. And history has proven that, if anything...
0: No, it's wrong. Yeah. are in retreat. If anything, globalisation is showing us the reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So do you do you do you read many of those sort of scholarly theses and apply that to what you see is happening in the media space? Is that something that you actively seek?
1: Yeah, I'm not an academic. My mm. mind doesn't work like an academic. My mm. wife is much more academic and mm. she's got two master's degrees and a an honors degree and and so it's quite interesting when I'm having my conversations with her. She's she's got international relations and media and and she sees things in in theoretical terms, and I, and I don't say that sneeringly because mm. the fight for theory, you know, we, you know, Huntington had a theory, and events proved him to be, broadly speaking, more right than wrong. Mm. Um, Frameworks. So, mm. Yeah. So, so I, I try to keep across the reading on it, and I, and, but it's always a matter of ch- of, of testing it against. Against realities, and Mm. I think one of the one of the brilliant things that the Americans far too late got to understand in places particularly like Iraq, with the help of guys like David Kilcullen, who were academics, Mm. but McMaster himself, as everyone knows, and Mm. and then ultimately McChrystal and Petraeus, was that you can't. Sun Tzu was right back Mm. in the, the old the old you know, Chinese scholar that if you don't know your enemy, you can't win a war. Yeah. And you have to actually understand it from their perspective.
0: Kilcullen's 20, and- 21, 21 questions, I think it was called, David Kilcullen had a, a wrote something called 21 questions, which was, I think that's right anyway, I'll check that, which I remember reading prior to going over there on the second rotation and then we came up with a term coin to contact. So coin being counterinsurgency, And for us, it was like the white space is counterinsurgency. Well, let's manipulate that white space to gather intelligence so that we can then target off the back of it. So coin to contact, we used to call it. So we'd go and build roads and, you know, deliver first aid and the like while trying to gather intelligence on a, you know, very fast-moving enemy force, which was, you know, not just an insurgency but was actually coming in and out of Pakistan at speed. So. In fact, one of the stories that I've got that you might be interested in was that one day we were going through the areas of Argandab, and I was going to villages, we were at the base there called Frontenac. The Americans were saying to me they had a problem with being rocketed from the hills in the distance. And we looked at the map and there's some villages about 20 kilometers away. And I said, oh, well, have, you, have you gone and done a, you know, any village security operations around these villages? And they said, well, no, you can't get any vehicles through there. And I said, yeah, but why don't you walk? And they go, well, we, we don't go anywhere without our vehicles. So the commando platoon, we left all our vehicles there and we, we walked through the night, the 20 kilometres, and the next morning we are in the village. No one had been to that village in Afghanistan ever, ever. We were the first troops there. And that wasn't the only village. It was the, it was six of them in, in like a big diamond shape. We went from village to village to village. They knew that, They knew that there was American forces in Afghanistan, but they'd never seen them. And we went in and around all these different villages and uh, we built up a rapport with the locals, gave a heap of kids medicine, you know, taught kids, you know, set tents up and took kids in and out of the tents and, and gave them, you know, medicine and, and all this sort of stuff. One of the locals said to me, oh, look, there's someone here who doesn't want you here. It's the local mullah in the mosque. And I said, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we could sit down and have a chat with him. And, and he said, well, he's not here. He's in Pakistan. He'll be back next week. And I went. Well, why is he in Pakistan? And he said to me, "Well, they're all from Pakistan here. They've killed all our mullahs about five years ago, and now every every Ramadan, the mullahs all come from Pakistan and they recruit all our men, take them back to Pakistan and train them, and then bring them back." We all looked at each other. and Went, "Wow, we're dealing with a counterinsurgency that's using the mosques as their power base. They're putting mullahs in from from Pakistan, so they're not even they're Pakistanis. They weren't even Afghans." They're running all the villages, so they basically become the chief of the villages, and then when all the men are coming of age, they're taking them all back with them every, every, at the end of every Ramadan to train them for the next fighting season. And we were, you know, we passed that information back up, and it, and it went nowhere because we, we continued to fight the same war year in, year out, the same rotation. We never, ever capitalized on the things that we learned from year on, year on. You know, It was always, yeah. I come back and start again, come back and start again, come back and start again. But we'd, we'd made a real inroad there. And understood something that was happening that no one else really understood.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you apply that Sun Tzu notion about the actual line is, is that if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you'll never be defeated. Mm. And and if you look at it, the Taliban's never been defeated mm. because they know themselves and they know their various enemies and they've certainly had some hard times and they've had, you know, you know the, the tides have been running against them. But They'll never be defeated because they've applied that better, mm. and and we're fighting and with a western
0: certain- with western mindsets as well. They could be defeated if if we were Genghis Khan esque and went there with the, with the gloves yeah. off and could raise you know whole populations. But obviously yeah, that's, we could that's scorch earth them <laughs> right. But that's not a, and and so modern times show because the Russians couldn't have done that. They didn't have the ability yeah. to do that. Whereas whereas we could have done that, but it, but no one would live with themselves. You know, and so no, no. And,
1: and, and no one would, would would remotely suggest that that's yeah. the way in a modern age that you can do it. it, it you know, one thing I do love reading is history, mm. and that sort of annihilation type of conquest mm. is fine as far as it goes. But even then, if you look at Genghis Khan, mm. there are all kinds of fingerprints of Genghis Khan that have survived down through the ages. Yeah. but he doesn't actually own. It's not part of the, mm. you know, Mongolian. Hegemony that goes all the way through as it once did. It doesn't matter what you do; at some stage, you know that the historically, the human tides will do their own thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and you have
0: to, to study. You have to promise. study that history to understand the country, especially. You have to understand that a British army was defeated there. <laughs> you know, like yeah. people people don't even understand that there was. I think one or two survivors from a whole army. Yes, yeah.
1: one one guy I think who got out yeah. who was the surgeon on the horse, wasn't it? Right. Who, uh, it got out of the calamity, the fall of Kabul the first time around the place. They, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Mm. And Iraq is another one. You've got to, you know, you have to understand what Iraq is, what an artificial construct it is, mm. uh, you know, how ancient it is, before you you can imagine that you can go in there and apply things. The fact that uh, George W. Bush, it was something like 2005, it was something really late before mm. he, he understood that there was a Sunni and a, and a Shia. It was certainly... Well, into the war, a year or or more on into the war, before, because he thought, yeah, we're going to kick ass with those Iraqis. He didn't understand anything about the place. And so, therefore, they were doomed to set back. You know, one of the things which is remarkable about Western military force, and particularly American led military force, is that it has access to the best in the world in Mm. terms of people who've studied in an academic sense. Mm people have ling- language skills, etc., and then it ignores that advice mm. again and again to essentially reduce everything down to it, cartoon it is, you,
0: you, You're so spot on, though. It is amazing the population they have to draw on. You know, I, I was fortunate enough to go to, to Hawaii as a special ops liaison officer on, on an exercise, and I walked into a room, and it was full of Navy SEAL, Delta Force, USSF, colonels, and, and above. And I think I've come across one officer who you may well know. I'm not able to mention his name, I don't think, or although he's well published in Australia. We've got one officer who I would put in their category. And this room was full of them. And to walk into a room and know you're the dumbest guy in the room because you come from a population that is, you know, so is the size of, you know, Los Angeles, you know, it's confronting actually when you realize just how incredibly talented their officer pool is and their academics that you know, in things like MITRE and things like that?
1: The, the difficulty with it being is that it runs in a political environment. Mm. And the thing which I think, I, I fully believe that democracy runs and has to run as a civilian enterprise and mm. that the military has a important but very constrained legally constrained role within that civilian enterprise mm-hmm. unless we're invaded by some vast overseas force in which case we're all in this, this together you know so I believe in civilian management I don't believe in militarized states and yet it is remarkable how the political process is so degraded mm-hmm. and yeah. it, it that applies I think george the, the George w Bush the Iraq invasion was, was just strategically horrific in terms of its consequences. So if and yet I've I've sat with uh, Alexander Downer in recent years in his retirement, mm. having dinner and so on, in which he says no, it's completely the right thing to do. Mm. You know, getting rid of Saddam Hussein, and I find it just hard to believe that you can make make a, a coherent argument that it was a a long term strategic game and B that it wasn't capable of being seen at the time mm. as being a great error on a whole bunch of levels.
0: Well, you know, Blair and Downer might. Might like some advice that you can't get fat from eating humble pie,
1: and even and even
0: Colin Powell and, and and as much as I respect Colin Powell and John Howard, you know, there's decisions that were made that were probably made in haste. I think most people, most Australians, look at Iraq and think, "Geez, we shouldn't have. We probably shouldn't have been involved in that." But I think with Afghanistan, you know, I remember I was in Timor at the time with the Fourth Battalion Commando as a reconnaissance sergeant, and we'd just come back from a long range patrol, and we were in the mess hall. And we're watching. We watched the second plane live on TV on September 11, and it had a profound effect on it. Had a profound effect on my life. Had a profound effect on the unit that I was in because obviously we we moved to then raise the second tactical assault group, and we went from a what was probably a C grade unit to a to a tier one unit in the space of a few years, where we were working with the big boys on the big stage. Yeah, and I think. I'm, and where were you during September 11? What and what did well, that, What effect in- did it have on your life?
1: Yeah, so I was actually in Nauru because I'd gone there. The Tampa thing, you might recall, was underway and they um, they brought up the uh, the menorah to pick them up, the Tampa refugees, 430-odd of them off the Tampa, and then they were shipping them across to Nauru. So I'd flown across to, uh, it was one of those days where I went to work one morning and I arrived home two months later. And in that amount of time, because I, I went to initially to Jakarta because the Tampa had picked up these people, was heading back to Jakarta. I jumped on a flight to Jakarta. By the time I got there, they said, wow. no, no, he's gone back towards Christmas Island. So I chartered a plane to Christmas Island. And so we watched that develop. And then when they were heading up to Nauru, I, I flew across the country, changed my bags in Sydney and flew straight on to Nauru. We
0: were really aware that we were opposite one of the largest Muslim populations in the world. Isn't that interesting? In September 11th, we were aware of that. Mm-hmm as a as, yeah. a as a unit so we we the the whole auspices of perhaps it was you know the clash of civilizations was very very fresh in our mind while we were there although yeah, although it wasn't because- that it wasn't that but but it was very you know and perhaps that says yeah, and, something and then, about us as a culture
1: yeah, hmm. yeah and and this shows the limitations of that clash of civilizations argument because in reality the world is much more interconnected mm. and uh You know, one of the things that the last, what is it, 17-odd years has taught us is that you can have relatively small groups of people who cause a hell of a lot of real harm, Mm. and that's really what's happened. Whether it's ISIS, whether it's al-Qaeda, Taliban, you know, they they can have a global reach when you start linking them down through Southeast Asia. People die and they suffer and all these things happen, and yet they have not been a societal clash, Mm. you know, because we still actually, if you look at the Islamic world, we have not actually gone to war with Islam. If we did actually go to war with Islam, which is what the hardliners want it all to be about, then the world would be stuffed.
0: World War stuffed. Three. Mm. You
1: know, it would be World War three. But mm. we, it actually has never happened, no. and in fact, it's never even got close to happening. Mm. So, and the reason for that is is that we underestimate, I think, the bind the, the ties that that bind us, the desire to find common ground, the desire to isolate off. The extremist elements, mm. and and of you know, there's a beautiful poem by William Butler Yeats that everyone knows about how the center doesn't hold, things fall apart, mm. and and we're conscious that that good people, if you want to make a contribution in your lifetime, you must strengthen the center, and you must find the center in other groups to whom you may not have a natural sense of rapport or understanding, but find the centre in those groups. That's what diplomacy is about and it's, yeah. diplomacy has saved and the human instinct for some sort of cooperation and compromise has saved billions of lives and, yeah. and we need to celebrate them from time to time.
0: Yeah, the, the, the five years that I spent working with moderate Muslims was probably the most fulfilling and interesting years of my life, to be fair, after post-army, sure. post-army. Completely different culture, and I don't agree with everything they agree with, obviously, especially from a religi- religious standpoint. But, but we can agree to disagree, or not, or not even talk about it. Actually, it's got nothing to do. It's not, none of my business, and none of their business. What I believe, but we're, we're still friends on different levels. In in fact, one of my friends, he's a, a Muslim academic, he's a cosmologist, and worked at CERN. Okay. I mean, you want to, <laughs> you know, that just speaks volumes to me of their interest in in things other than worrying about, you know, a clash of civilizations, so to speak. Yeah, so what's your favourite chapter in the book?
1: Um, To be honest, you know what a book's like. You you labour over them, you Mm. get the thing knocked out and Mm. then you wind up talking about it. But you don't go back and read the book all the time. No. I I, I don't know. I mean, really, I I see more about the experiences of my life and Mm. the things... People generally say, you know, it was the best story you ever worked on, or whatever, or the biggest story, or something. Mm. I always try to lead it back to, say, Mandela on the night that I oh, happened to be in the room when he came out and told his close supporters that the formal results had come through and that won the election. And to be with a man of that stature at that moment in history was a huge moment.
0: Bigger than being in the same hotel as Trump and, and Kim Jong. Because <laughs> you were there too, weren't you?
1: Um, Oddly, yes, I was there as well. Yes, oddly, yes, bigger than that, yeah. you know, a couple of clowns performing um, oh. compared with the guys. It's interesting that both yeah. Hawke and Fraser were two men I got to know uh, quite well mm. because it was outside the normal cycle of the sort of the news news thing. And both of them told me with great sincerity and intent that I understood their meaning, both of them told told me that the greatest human being that ever met was Nelson Mandela. And because these guys were both professional politicians, I understood power and they they understood what it took, the sacrifice involved in it, the responsibilities and the and the joys of it, I suppose. I remember saying to Malcolm Fraser, I said, What, what you know, what was it about him? I mean, is it it was it, is it was he did he have a gigantic intellect or did he have something else? And he said, No, at, at a certain level you expect intellect. Intellect's a given. And it's not even courage, moral courage. He said, "It's judgment. Judgment is the mark of a giant leader." Mm. And I think that's true. Mandela's only glaring lapse in judgment was that, for some reason, that a, at a, at a, once he'd got in, he'd become president and so on. He bought into or allowed to buy into a totally debunked theory about HIV not being connected to AIDS, mm. and so for years they didn't act on the AIDS epidemic in South Africa, and a lot of people died. And it was a terrible lapse of judgment. But it was anyone I can think of. And the rest of the time, having seen him in crowds, having seen him give speeches, having seen him in intimate moments, he was faultless in his capacity. And the, the highest mm. praise that a New Zealand Maori can say of someone else is that they have mana, mm. M-A-N-A, which is a word which conveys a kind of a, that a person carries a distillation of sort of dignity and authority and integrity and not even charisma but something because I've seen people who definitely have it in mm. that world who don't seem charismatic and yet they there's something about them mm. and it's a wonderful word I think everyone should study it and see mm. who, who has it and who has it because it's a good way to judge who's worth actually supporting and who isn't mm. but in terms of that great Polynesian word Maori word mana mm. no one had mana more than
0: well, can I ask you then? And we talked about moral courage, so it would be, you know, it would be lack of moral courage for me not to ask you this. Was he not simply a terrorist prior to him being arrested, or is that a, is that a narrative that was controlled by the state? Because I, I know that there was.
1: Well, no. Look, I mean, it's 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 a fair argument. He had decided to go for um, armed resistance against a repressive, mm. racist regime. Mm. So, was he a terrorist? You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, as the line mm. goes. But he was certainly committed to to armed resistance, and mm. he saw that as being a necessary tool mm. to what was going on. What was mm. essentially the apparatus of a state that was going to deprive its people Mm. of every form of legal right and dignity, including who they had sex with, but certainly about property, that the whole thing was going to do it. So, yes, he believed in armed resistance. Mm. And when he emerged, someone said to him, what was the difference? emerged from jail 27 years later. Someone said to him, well, you went in there saying you're willing to use armed resistance and you've emerged, you know, talking of peace and... Reconciliation and 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 making people like family de Klerk, the Nationalist Party leader, his you know partner in this process. So the question was, what's changed between the guy who wanted war and the guy who wanted peace in the in the twenty seven years difference? Mm. And his answer was two words. He said, "I matured." It's mm. interesting. And that was all the answer he needed. He realised on reflection that
0: mm.
1: it that it needed a different approach. So I see this stuff every time Mandela's turns up on Twitter, you know, mm. someone mentioned on Twitter or Facebook, ah, oh, he's a terrorist. Mm. And I just think it says far more about the person throwing that line around mm. than it does. You know, I would hope that if Australia was to create uh, a circumstance under which the majority of the population was to be deprived of everything they had, yeah. I, I would fully expect that some parts of Australia would resist even mm. to the point of arms. Mm. Yeah. You know, that that would happen.
0: It's such, a, it's such a shame to see what's happening there now, but again, I'm not sure who to believe because you see so many counter reports. Um, but yeah, it'd be interesting to yeah. to go there and well, see Well, the first I mean, temp.
1: there is a determination to remove farms from white farmers. Mm. Uh, there is an outfit over there called the Economic Freedom Fighters, who are a, a sort of a, a hardline radical mob. They famously dress in red overalls as part of their uniform. Mm they are really a dangerous force mm. they i would be concerned about them and their approach they have their chance at their rallies of mm. uh, one settler one bullet they still do that and kill mm. the boer and they defend that as apparently been defended as being right of free speech under south african law but i i think when any any group works into its language the killing of another group mm. is a matter of real Concern. Uh, distress and
0: disturbance mm. so hugh Remington, without a g because a lot of people say Remington, don't they
1: <laughs> <laughs> they do i had some illiterate forbear who couldn't spell his own name and i wound up without a g i
0: thought i'd i thought i'd uh i thought i'd just lighten the mood a little bit being a foreign correspondent you must have learned some special skills over the years things things from people that you've you know that you've witnessed you know you must have picked up something we were talking earlier <laughs> earlier today that perhaps you've you've you know, you've been fortunate enough to have some some SAS friends and some spy friends over the years, and and what would you, what what have you learnt by osmosis that that you can use in your day to day life now? Bearing in mind that no one's ever seen Hugh Remington, Hugh Jackman, or Hugh Grant in the same room, so you're not actually sure that you're that you are not shape changing. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I'm the good looking, charming, muscular one. Um, yeah, right. Uh, uh, of those three, the. Uh, Look, I've enjoyed the company of lots and lots of people. And, and certainly there is a particular skill, I think, among a lot of my friends who are in special forces. And I've, I think one of the, the great skills that I've picked up, also from, I've got to say, a friend of mine who was a spy, mm. is uh, two things. One is that I was in India once just doing something completely bland and benign covering the Commonwealth Games back in 2010. And we are trying to get... It was as bland as this. We had to go and go to stand-up outside a stadium. And Mm. some Indian official came over, upset that we were there to do whatever we were doing. We had some security, an ex-SAS guy, who was there with us just in his civvies. The fear was that possibly the Pakistani actors may come in and try and disrupt New Delhi's big event. So that's why we had the security there. And... Without, some, without more than just a, a fleeting sort of meeting of the eye between him and me, he went off and ran interference on the sky, charmed him so much. Meanwhile, we knocked off our piece to camera without the guy really noticing, and then we all left with handshakes, smiles, and were the best of mates. And I think that is, it's mm. those soft order skills of, of um, mm. a Special Forces soldier, that capacity to read the room and to get your tactical use whatever tactics you need to get the outcome that you want Hmm. no guns no threats the guy wouldn't even imagine that he was talking to a soldier and things like that work and I also had a spy I was in Vladivostok covering APEC which is a big um, talk fest Vladimir Putin had laid on this big thing on this island so they could secure it. it had a bridge that went in and out and so all the leaders were there and journos were there and all the rest of it and I was well into a few beers with a mate of mine who I knew was back history and I I said to him look you know how do you get into a conversation so you want to turn somebody and win their trust how do you do that how do you open a conversation with a complete stranger such that they become someone who trusts you and he goes oh well you know there are skills about that so so you've got them he was a classic gray man there was Mm -hmm. nothing about him wasn't good looking wasn't ugly he was middle-aged he was kind of the hair was fair, going slightly grey. He wasn't. Fit. Mm. There was nothing about him that was remotely memorable in the great tradition of great spies. Mm. And I said, "Okay, well, here's a challenge." We're at the bar, and the, a woman had walked in who was uh, Chinese-looking, beautiful, tall, and quite unusual in that she had visible tattoos. Mm. Really, she was smoking hot, quite mm. young, and she'd come up to the bar by herself. And I said, "Okay, sunshine, go and show me your skills." So he went up to the bar and I didn't look at him because I thought the woman might get a sense that there was something up and and I didn't want to put him off or she mm. goes, hang on, the, uh, is this bit set up or whatever the hell it was. So I just kind of glazed, you know, gazed away and let him do this thing. And I looked up again a couple of minutes later. He was in warm, active conversation with this woman. Mm. Her body language was open to him and chatting. And so he came back that and after he'd made his point, he came back down and I said, what? how the hell did you he do that? He said, he went up. There was a bloke on the left buying a drink. He engaged him in a conversation. He stepped back a little to open up a little triangle. Mm. Introduced her into the conversation to this guy. After a couple of couple of moments, directed the conversation back onto her. Mm. She feels safe because she doesn't feel as if he's gone out there to her to ping her in the first place. Mm. And something about what he was saying and the thing had had won her trust. Mm. And I thought, I oh, would. Those are skills. I'm a journalist. I speak to people from all walks of life in mm. all parts of the world. Mm. So conversation is not something I'd struggle with, but I looked at them and thought there are real skills in some of these dark arts mm. and you can only look at them in a war.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That would have been, have I'm, too, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm generally too nervous to, to walk up to girls in bars, but anyway. Um, so you have a lot on, I mean, tell me all the things you're working on, on, on at the moment. It's impressive.
1: Well, I do I do work seven days a week. I, yeah. So I've got a full-time job at Channel 10. Mm. So I do a bit of news reading, but it's mainly, you know, I'll turn up on the project or Studio mm. 10, the daytime stuff. But, mm. but really I'm reporting and I've been working with a researcher. We've been doing uh, some interesting stories and we had a, a bit of a story just, you know, this in the last week or so with revealing Peter Dutton's constitutional issues, which played into the leadership thing. So, mm. so it's fun to be in the middle of that. I also do an ABC radio show on Sunday mornings mm. on Radio National, RN as they call it, between mm. 7 and 10. And that's quite intense. There's a fair bit of reading that's much more intellectual. You meet lots of people. I really enjoy that work as well. Mm. And I raise three kids, three mm. primary age kids. Mm. I've got an older daughter as well. But um, And I'm on the board of Soldier On. And uh, I'm also on the board of a... Um, Another charity, which a friend of mine, a Sudanese a child soldier friend of mine, Deng Adut, mm. he founded it and I sort of help him with that. Mm. And we raise money. Deng raises an enormous amount of money and we pay for university scholarships. The, the main thing we do is we pay for right. university scholarships for kids from refugee backgrounds mm. to give them a they go. So there's plenty going on, but all of it is really interesting and rewarding. It's just mm don't get to sleep
0: that's do you miss being a, a a true foreign correspondent or or a or an embed sort of war correspondent or those type of those type of roles that you've done previously or is that something you'll probably keep away from now or
1: no well it's funny because i i did my last one in Iraq just before I married my wife we, we, we'd been together for a while we so mm. we know had, had two kids going but they and she said at the end of that that's it you know i made a deal with her. Because I came out of mm. a, a, Afghanistan uh, literally just days before I went, got home, then flew off to Cambodia, we got married at Angkor Wat in the beautiful temple mm. complex there. It's wonderful. But they... Mm. Um, I really like Cambodia. Uh, mm. Oh, yes, it's it's an amazing place, although rather rather bleak at the moment, I've got to say. Is it? Uh, But, well, you know, Hun Sen's just got back in again in Cambodia. He's taken control of the country. He's won 125 of the 125 seats at the recent elections. Mm. He's jailed all the opposition. He's just jailed this Australian filmmaker, James Rickardson, on charges of spying for a foreign country because he put up a drone to film an opposition rally. So, you know, where's the spying? It, you know the, the cambodia is really That's true. It, it's really sliding in a desperately
0: i really liked dangerous. phnom penh i saw it as one of the last sort of places you could go that gave that true cultural experience you know which was sort of devoid of all you know western well most westernization and the, and the there's an amazing bar there that a mutual friend of ours told me i had to go to which was chris masters which is the journalist's bar or the correspondence foreign correspondence club foreign yeah. Correspondence Overlooking,
1: Overlooking the River. yeah
0: so I went there every day while I was while I was working for uh, another government agency let's say yeah and it was just the best experience you know to go there and that's where I started writing writing the fighting season actually yeah. yeah. Mm. So, had an. Well, I can mean, see
1: how that's yeah. an inspiring place to think, right? Yeah. You so, know, an Australian special forces. A Hemingway moment. An Australian it.
0: special forces officer sitting in the foreign foreign correspondent bar in Phnom Penh, overlooking the Mekong, writing a book about Afghanistan. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Perfect. <laughs> that sense. is perfect. That's a great story, mm. and what a transition you've made. I mean, that's a. Uh, you know, a lot it's of people a work struggle in progress. It, but, mm. but your books are fantastic. I really enjoy them. and mm. the. Um, The vividness of it and uh, the reality, you know, this.
0: You might, but but the thing is, you you might need someone to pick up that mantle now for the foreign correspondent piece. And I've got my my hand up. I'm I'm ready to go. Let's go. Let's do this.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, why not? I mean, Mm. one thing about it is, is that the Mm. the post nine eleven wars are running their course Mm. in a sense. Syria was a, uh, you know, the killing of journalists, the beheading of journalists and so on, has certainly had a chilling effect. Mm. You know, the death of veterans like Marie Colvin, the knowledge now that she was targeted to be killed, you know, the the sheer lunatic fun of it. There were always dangers in it. Mm. And we were naive. I was desperately unaware of dangers, particularly when I started. My book is embarrassing again and again at how, how narrowly I managed to escape things, not because I was courageously working mm. the odds and but just because I was such a bloody dick. We, we I wouldn't, know, any what was we
0: going wouldn't on. know anything about, you know, like Kosovo, for instance, if it hadn't been for foreign correspondence, would it?
1: No, look, I think the, the role is a really important mm. one. But the money, I can't stress this too much. The money that was available to send foreign correspondence around the world has disappeared. The mm. the The way in which advertising has gone to specialized, you know, in in the old days, as we all know, newspapers and TV stations absorbed all the advertising money. These are billion dollar industries. And with all that money, they could afford to send reporters off around the world. And now that the advertising has substantially gone to dedicated websites like real estate or uh, domain, all, all the real estate money's gone to those things. They don't hire journalists. And they certainly don't have foreign correspondence. Mm. Seek does its own thing. And so, therefore, the, the advertising that has, has kept journalism afloat for 150 years has gone, and or mm. uh, well, substantially gone, and therefore the, the days that I lived in have gone. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the brutal part of it.
0: Yeah, it's, um, oh, mate, it's unbelievable. Where can people find your books?
1: So my books can be found online and at all good booksellers. So mm. it's a, a new edition's just come out. So mine feels a life in the news game is, is around. And there's there's a new edition, which is uh, at a lower price point. So I think you can get it for about mm. 20 bucks if you shop around mm. or online.
0: Mm. I'll be bringing my copy next weekend just in case I get to see you. Fantastic. Because I'm sick I'll bring of
1: mine at the fighting season.
0: Oh, I think yours is already signed, isn't it?
1: I think it might be. I'll, I go down. I'll, get, I'll get the... I uh, think I was... <laughs> I'll get something signed.
0: Yeah, okay. Hugh Remington. I want to thank you very much for being on the Warrior U podcast. Obstacle racing is all the rage across the world. And here in Australia, we are sport for quality. If you want to test your physical and mental toughness, then get outside and compete in True Grit. It's a military-inspired obstacle course. I know it's legit because I served in Special Forces with a co-founder and managing director, Adam McNamee. And to celebrate our bromance, the good dudes at True Grit have created a discount code for listeners of this podcast. Use the code WARRIORU2019. That's WARRIORU2019. 10% For 10% off every one of the 2019 events. And hopefully I'll see you there wearing one of my Warrior U t-shirts. Catch you gang. Bye.